Have you thought about starting your own podcast? Well, if you have, then you want to download Anchor. It's the easiest way that you can make a podcast. They give you everything you need in one place, and it's absolutely for free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll even distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere, like on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and others. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you were thinking of starting your own podcast, you want to download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Right. Happy Tuesday, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 118 of Shut Up and Grind with your host, yours truly, Robert B. Foster. If you are new to the show, yes, I wear a tank top, not to show off. It's because I emit a lot of heat and I'd be a hot, sweaty mess by the end of this broadcast if I did not wear one. So don't think I'm that guy, although the shoulders do look pretty nice. All right. So again, if you're new to the show, we talk about overcoming obstacles. We talk about defying the odds and we do this for you. This isn't just so I can hear myself talk. This isn't just so we can hear the guests talk is we want to combine our messages to help you. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. you got to know your work. All right, so that's just a little snapshot into my background, but when it comes to overcoming obstacles, I've done it. All just from failures in high school to athletic failures to a crushed Olympic dreams to a devastating knee injury where I was told I'd never want to jump again to donating a kidney to my sister to being told a college dropout will never succeed in business having to move my 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 gym several times to have in business partners trying to sue me like the stories are endless but you know what I'm still here I'm still right here and so I find guests from all over the world who share their struggles, they share their backstories so they can help inspire you to get through whatever it is you might be going through. And you might ask yourself, why does he always wear, wear a tank top? A, it's hot and I sweat. B, I like to show off my muscles, I work hard for these. And C, my ability to inspire you has absolutely nothing to do with the clothing on my back. All right, so now that that's out of the way, let's talk about today's topic. It's about finding your passion, or more importantly, when your job 
becomes your passion. Because let's face it, everybody works for money. Everybody does. I love when people say, oh, I just love this job. I'm so passionate about it. Would you do it for free? And then the faces change. You know, so like when you actually have something that you would do for free, that is something that you're truly passionate about. No, I'm not saying do it for free because you're valuable. Your time is valuable. Your experience is valuable. Your effort and your dedication is all valuable. So you definitely want to get paid for what you do. But would you do it for free? That is the question. Because when I speak, I will speak for, for free. Like local, does local schools here in Rhode Island, I will never charge a, charge any one of these local schools for me to come in and speak at their events or into their classrooms. Never, never, never. Rival, rival, not rival, but neighboring states, absolutely. I will charge them. But local, no. Like, this is where I'm from. I'm homegrown. I will gladly, gladly give back because I'm passionate about what I do, about helping people find the hidden gems that are already inside of them. And we're going to pull them out. Just like my guest who was working in a certain field, which she'll get into to all of that. But throughout that process, it became something bigger than her just earning a paycheck. And I'm going to bring her on now so we can get her story. So help me welcome to the show, Dr. Karen. And I asked her how to pronounce her last name this time. Gedney, bring her in. Welcome to the show, Karen. Well, Rob, it's great to be here. And I love your energy. And I love the fact that you're an athlete, because that is something that I've always been all my life. Awesome. Even in my inspire other people to tell maybe the dirty parts of their story that they think won't inspire other people. And I show them how to pluck out the power in those stories so you can help other people move forward. So no matter what it is you're keeping inside, no matter what path you win on. Oh, God. Here, here I was blanking on, on that, but you're absolutely oh. right. And, uh, and it's interesting to me that they uh, really honed in on Karen, but yeah. because I'm an analytical thinker instead of an emotional thinker, yeah. it's because Karen was a very common uh, name, especially in the 50s and 60s in women. And now those women are older and let's say set in their ways. They're in their 50s mm -hmm. and 60s. And just by sheer number, you're going to have some bad apples. And if you have a large number and a few bad apples, it's statistically, you're going to have the name that comes up the most often. So it's sort of funny. I, uh, and I look at myself in my life, like I am the epitome of something entirely different mm -hmm. than those women. And uh, to me, it's amusing, not annoying but that's the way i've uh, survived my life is not to take things personally at all ever <laughs> that's that's an amazing answer <laughs> i'm actually glad i asked like i was on the fence if i was going to ask you or not but then the boldness of me was like just ask <laughs> so that was a great answer all right so where where are you from I grew up in upstate new york in the catskill okay. mountains nice. about as secluded uh, a childhood as you could imagine <laughs> Yeah, I've been up that way. It's like it's like 50 miles in between exits up there. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful area, though. I love the mountains. Around here, I love going up to New Hampshire and Vermont. I, I just love the mountains. My happy place. Yeah, and uh, one of the things my father was really into, because uh, he had always wanted to do it when he was a kid, was to ski. Enough about that. Kurt, <laughs> who the hell are you? All right, who is Who Kurt? am I? <laughs> 
It depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> I like to think of myself as somebody who believes that you can be whatever you want to be or achieve whatever you want to achieve at any point in your life. And as long as you believe in yourself and you're willing to put the work in to do it, there's nothing you can't achieve. And we've and, and it's and I can almost assure you everybody in your audience has had at least one example in their life where they put their mind to something to go, I'm going to get this or I'm going to do this and did it beyond what anybody else believed they would do. And you you mentioned you know a few minutes ago about, you know, screw the people who 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 are telling you can't do things. The biggest give me a heads up before the program began. So and I and I didn't know where you're going to go with this conversation. So <laughs> since you picked the topic that you picked, let me start with a story. Okay. So, uh, my, both of my parents are Ukrainian farm immigrants. They wound up breaking the prairie soil in the challenge. But you cannot let even them hold you back from doing what you know you should do. And uh, and, and for a lot of people, that's that's one of the biggest challenges they have. Yes, and with that too, saying screw them, that just means to. So who who is Karen? If you were to meet to meet some people as you are right now, you you're meeting my, myself and my audience. Like, how would you describe yourself? Ooh, I am someone who started out as an introvert and had to break out of my own little prison. Moment, I want to say words that would make my mother look at me very strangely. <laughs> and I, I'm pleading, I'm cut. I pick up the rock that my head hit, and it's a diamond. Mm. It's a sapphire. It's a ruby. And that is actually kind of my life story. I, I'll be doing my ordinary work. I'll be going along doing something. I'll trip over something that I think is a tremendous nuisance. And the next thing you know, I've discovered that I've hit on something that's marvelous and a treasure. So I would describe me as the guy who tripped over stuff that he wasn't expecting to find. <laughs> <laughs> the result of it is that it's the, the things that I did not expect would make me to get me to the place I am were the very foundation stones that brought me there. Love so the title is quite happy. What happens if you just don't get it? Because I just didn't get it. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> the pitch I gave you at the National Felicity Summit was a story of my just not getting it. Yeah. And so I don't know if you want to hear that story. We, of course. Well, so here's here's what it is. So so I met you at the National Publicity Summit. I signed up to do a course. I'm into the Luftwaffe. And uh, her father was thrown into the Western Front. They never found him again. Wow. And the Russians, when the Russians came in, uh, the mother and uh, eight little kids ran and basically starved, froze, ended up in a Russian prisoner of war camp. Then after the war, that area of Germany was given to Poland. Then they were refugees. Mm -hmm. And my mother spent all her formative years with that type of trauma. And um, she ultimately was getting tired of living in Red Cross barracks when she was a teenager. And uh, she was the first one of the kids who became a Dienstamation, which means a slave, where they farm you out. She was farmed out to Scotland to be a farmhand. Then uh, she ended up in England as a maid. And just because of luck, uh, got someone to sign visa papers for her. So she be got to the United States in the 50s. 
And then uh, she met my father, who was also a child of immigrants, and neither one had ever completed high school, and both were traumatized by war. And then I was born, then my sister was born, and here we are in the Catskill Mountains. And my mother had an unusual resilience in one way, but unbelievable fears in another. You don't fail. You don't, you don't fail until you quit. That's when you fail. Bingo. You know, everything else is a lesson. Everything is a lesson. I've learned so many lessons in my life. I've learned several lessons over and over. Again. And so, yeah. but I finally got, you know, I finally got. Yeah. All right. Okay. I mean, that. And we were never allowed to speak to strangers, let alone look at them. Um, when we went to school, because we were sort of on the poor end, uh, my mother made our little, you know, clothes. So you'd imagine I'm in homemade clothes with two long blonde braids. I could have had a goat and I would have been like Heidi. You see what I mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then when I grew up with these German parents, um, they mixed and matched English. So sometimes my English doesn't come out semantically correct because there were words that I thought were English words that were German words. You see what I mean? So then you get teased in school because you have a whole different construction of your language system. Yes. But, and I was highly, highly nearsighted and they didn't know that. And because my parents don't like weakness, you know, uh, I hid that for years that I actually couldn't see probably six inches in front of me. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and so that really allowed me or maybe pushed me where one of the things I could see were books. So I loved, I was a, I was a person who just consumed books and lived in books because my vision was so bad and they really didn't catch me. And in school, you know, where they test you, I would just memorize what the kids said in front of me because I couldn't even see the wall. Wow. And those weird things make you or, or put me on the path of being an introvert and a loner. A loner. Okay. okay. So when you say that your parents didn't like weakness, do you think that stems from the PTSD of the war trauma? Absolutely. Because if you were weak, you weren't going to make it. Yeah. Uh, and, and also there's this German sort of cultural thing about uh, being tough, you know, uh, and also not being emotional. Uh, just if things get tough, you just get tougher. This is an example. I mean, just thinking about this, the way <laughs> what you're interested in my background <laughs> was, uh, you know, we're lived in the country, right? So I'm about six, my sister's five. We still talk about this. And I was really into climbing. I'm climbing up the tree, really tall. I sit on a branch, I fall through the tree, go splat and knock myself unconscious. Oh, wow. All right, my sister did not go home and, and tell my mother. She just sat there and poked me with a stick until I finally came to. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. All right. And we never told our mother. So then yeah. I've got to hide all the scratches on my body. You see what I mean from going yes. through the tree. Yes. But, but this is how we grew up because my mother so overreacted to if you were late a minute, that meant you could have been dead. Right. Mm. So I had this weird anxiety about being always early to everything. Gotcha. Uh, you know, so there are all these weird things 
where I remember once uh, when I was whatever, seven or eight, and sometimes religious people show up at the door, even out yes. in Boonie land. Okay. Mm-hmm. And somehow they got into the house and they basically, and I still remember this, they said things to my mother like, oh, they've got to go to church. Otherwise, you know, they'll burn in hell or whatever it was. And my mother started crying and I had never seen weakness in my mother. Yes. And I, I learned about her religious stuff. But when that happened, that also really gave me a very bad look at religion at a very young age, that they were that abusive. So I've had a thing about uh, power and abuse, you know, not only hearing all the German stories about the Nazis and and people following orders just because they're told to follow orders. So I was uh, sort of set up... um, not to follow orders <laughs> that I did not agree in, yes. you know, which is different than you want things orderly, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. but it not, power was different. Yeah. Not just being a straight, a straight up rebel. Yes. No, no. I had that weird both sides going on. Yes. Yeah. Like I, like I understand that with the crying as, as weakness, because you know, being, being men, like, you know, we're, we're kind of taught that, whether it's through from our parents or even through society, like, come on, come on, you're a man. You know, men, men aren't supposed to cry. Men aren't supposed to cry. And you know, now that I'm getting into my late 40s now, and I, I teach about being vulnerable. Like, it's it's okay to be vulnerable, you know? And that, that's a big reason why I started this this podcast to get into people's backstories, to, to just own what own what happened, own what you went through. Like, like it's okay because there's someone else that's really, really stuck into their own box or their own bubble, and they don't know how to get out of it. And then on on the, I mean, anyone can benefit from it, but if there's a, another man out there listening that has something that they're facing and they don't know how to get through it, seeing someone else share will help them share. And for example, I had a, I had a, a man on my show, he's a single parent. And the mom really isn't in the picture. And he's like, that's usually not the case. It's usually the other way around where the mom has the kids and the dad's not in the picture. And so as I'm asking him questions, like I got him to open up about that. And he says, you know, and this is just so hard because there's no one to talk to. I said, see, but from you sharing that, I will now tell you I'm in the same boat. (laughs) I said, I have custody of my kids and their mom is 800 miles away. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so so like so like that's the power of being vulnerable. So he shared that story. He got teary eyed, but then he found an ally. You know, so there's actual strength in that moment of weakness. Yeah, and I think you actually have to be strong to be able to show weakness. Yes, or invulnerability. And I will say, like working in a male prison where weakness is, uh, it's a really interesting thing because they do not want in any way to be weak or vulnerable with each other because there are a lot of predators and and there's a, like a system where you don't want that to happen because then you get taken advantage of. But when they would see me and uh, I'm not a threat to them and I'm there to listen and care. 
I never saw so many guys cry in my exam room where no one else was around mm. ever, ever, ever in my life uh, because they were hurting on so many levels. I mean, because it's not only their freedom, it's their loss from their family, their children, their careers, their dreams. I mean, it, it's, I mean, if you don't address that, then that chews you up um, and affects you. And uh, yeah, the PTSD that I saw uh, in the men in the prison was really quite extraordinary. I bet, I bet. And we'll definitely get there. So what was your childhood dream job? My childhood dream job? Yeah. It, and this is gonna sound weird uh, <laughs> in that because you know, here I am reading all these books, and, and I loved books. And some people will ask me, well, why did you want to become a doctor? And in my story, I think it's like 100% different than anybody else's. Because one, I didn't have any doctors in my family. I didn't even have anyone in my family who graduated high school. And um and I, and I had never, we didn't have TVs, you know, so I didn't know what like doctors were supposed to be like. And we didn't go to doctors because you just heal or die, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, but, but here I'm reading books and there was a series written by Frank G. Slaughter. And this guy, uh, I found out later, he was a surgeon and he wrote probably 50 or 60 books and they were fictional stories about doctors throughout history. So you'd have to imagine there would be the buccaneer surgeon, the surgeon in the Roman legion, the surgeon during the crusades, whatever. I mean, all over the place. And I read those stories and he intertwined uh, the science of the time, uh, individuals, mind you, they're all male. It didn't occur to me like, oh, I'm a female. <laughs> they're all male. But, uh, but they stood up against abuses of power. They helped people, but they also had romance and danger and excitement and saw the world. You see what I mean? Yes. And that became my dream, like this ide idealized view of what a doctor was. And it just never occurred to me in those days that that these stories were all about males, not females. You know, I didn't read nurse stories. You see what I mean? True, yeah. And in fact, in uh, and I'll never forget this, which is another reason I, I was very introverted as a kid. In seventh grade, you know, that was our school system. That's where you was go to the high school building, right? And then they test you and the guidance counselor. And I tested high just because I liked to study. And the guidance counselor asked me, well, well, yeah, you're doing well, da, 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 da. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a doctor. And this guy looked at me like, and said, wouldn't you rather be a nurse? Okay. Mm. You see what I mean? And so. A little bit sexist, just a little yeah, bit. Well, well, you know, I think I didn't know the word sexist in those. Terms. I just yeah. thought, okay, that's the last time I'm ever going to talk to a mentor or a guidance counselor. You know, I made these like unfortunate black and white decisions in my brain. Yeah. And uh, and that that really limited me because I never reached out for help. I was always trying to do everything on my own, which made things infinitely harder for me. 
Say, and I want to expand on that a little because for the people listening, if you watch this show on the regular, you know that theme comes up so often where people have it, a, a goal and then somebody else tries to stuff them in a box and be like, oh, you know, you should do something else or you don't have the personality for that or you need this amount of education for that. It's like that's not for, for anyone else to decide. You know, you, this, this is your life. This is your future, your career choice. You no, know, this is where your passion has taken you. And it's up to you to make that decision. Like people know when I started my gym, my, my now ex, she really wasn't on board in the beginning because I was managing re restaurants. I had a steady paycheck, you know, I could afford the house, you know, the cars and the kids. And it's just what it was. So going into business, it's a little, it's a little murkier, <laughs> you know, right. like, you know, it's like, you don't have a college degree. You don't have a business background. You don't know marketing, but I was like, but you know what, but I'm managing restaurants. Like I actually learned a lot more in those. I mean, I was actually managing for about 16 of those 20 years. So it's like, I learned a lot and I just had to learn what I didn't know. Said, so let me just apply what I have and let's get the ball rolling because I knew I was great with connecting people and making people feel good about themselves and helping them achieve results, helping them build confidence and resilience. So it's like that's the biggest core is focus on the people and then everything else just kind of fell in line the way it should have, you know, so like what that person, that mentor should have said to you, how can I help you become that doctor? Like we need those mentors and those teachers and coaches in our lives. Those people that will show us how or lead us to someone who can show us how. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Rob. And I'd like to add one thing because, you know, when I look back at it and you're absolutely right, you want to pick the people who uh, support you in your dream, uh, but also give you good advice the, the thing that I missed, and I think people have to realize, is that you don't want to generalize one bad experience to others. Because what I did was when that, men, well, when that guidance counselor said that to me, I just made a seventh grade. I mean, what was I, like 12 or 13? I made yeah. a 12-year-old decision <laughs> that I – that it makes, I decided, well, I'm not going to reach out to help for any mentor or guidance person. You see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, at that time, I just, I, you know, at 12, I didn't really understand that, okay, that was a stupid decision because there could be good mentors and guidance people. Yes. But I just decided, all right, I'm on my own. And and that's a mistake, I think, that a lot of people, what, one bad thing happens and they their brain, especially if they're young, it, they generalize it because they don't know. Yeah, especially now, too, because kids nowadays aren't raised the way we were. You know, like we were raised with standards. We were raised with you had to earn your spot. You had to earn your keep. And now everybody just gets handed stuff. And then when they get out into the real world and they face struggle, they're like, they don't, they don't know how to deal with it. And again, I can't say everyone, but I've seen enough to where I'm comfortable saying that. There are just a lot of younger people. They just don't know how to cope with the stresses of life because everything has been made easy. 
And, you know, for, for the parents, I mean, the parents are my age and up, the parents of these kids. But we didn't have these when we were growing right. up. Where we could just say, "Look, just go sit in the corner and while I while I do work or clean the clean the or whatever." You know, like I remember with my, with my mom when she had to do the dishes, we were right there with her. <laughs> you know, when she was sweeping the floor, I was holding the dustpan. So, so right. it's like it's like we were involved in the chore. You know, it wasn't just here. Just go sit in the corner on your iPad for three hours. You know, and and again, not saying all oh, parents, but stuff like that. It, it's it's making just the population of the spirit lands it feels very different very 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 different it's like this burning fire of joy yeah and it's a compassion thing in fact one of the triggers where i know that i'm supposed to pray for somebody to get well is there's a welling up of compassion inside of me even particularly if i don't know the person or if i don't like the person <laughs> <laughs> and, if, and if I find a welling up of compassion coming inside of me for somebody that I don't like, oh, that would not be me. Thank you very much. That's the Lord. That's God. In fact, if you, if you read the Gospels, it's very interesting. One of the most fascinating studies that you can do is to look at the relationship between that emotion called compassion and the miracles of Jesus. Yes. Back in, in Mark chapter 1. A leper comes running up to him, throws himself down at Jesus' feet. It's in Mark chapter 1. I think it's about verse 40 or 41. And and I don't know if you know what they, they did quarantine in those days because they knew that leprosy would just destroy a community and kill people and make them helpless and so on. So they used to quarantine these guys and they put them into leper villages and they had to ring a bell and say they were unclean. Everybody came near them and so on. This leper runs right up to Jesus and throws himself down at his feet with the apostolic band all around him. I think the 12 guys ran. <laughs> and, and the guy says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the scripture says this interesting thing. Moved with compassion. He said, I'm willing. And then he touched him. So he broke the rules based upon this welling up of compassion. One of the signals that I've come to recognize is that when that happens inside of you, that is God himself saying, you need to care for this person. I don't give a rip if you love them or if you detest them. This is someone that I need you to touch and love and care for. And so when it grates against my sensibilities, mm -hmm. it is much more likely that that's the Lord. <laughs> no. You know this, and I, you have people you love and you have people you don't love. Yeah. In fact, I listened to one of your broadcasts. You don't like Democrats. <laughs> I don't like democratic ideology. Okay, there you go. But let's say that you, yeah. you meet one of the harbingers of one of those big ideas that you detest. Mm. And, so, and you're in the presence of this person and you're going after the bad thing. Uh, this is the kind of thing where you know it's God when he commands you to care for that person. Yes. Then you know it's the Lord. Because it goes against your own sensibilities. It goes against your earnest desires. It goes against, so let's say somebody hurt your wife. Mm. And you wind up being somebody who is called upon to give care to somebody who has been nasty to your family. And when you feel grace rising up inside you, when you're beside somebody who doesn't deserve it, that's the Lord. His nature's mercy. His nature's compassion. His nature's kindness. I mean, let me let me tell you another healing story because again, uh, it's 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 when you just don't get it. I mean, it's it's the whole thing. So one of the most 
one of the most remarkable ones that happened was when I was serving at a church in Chatham, Ontario, which is a, it's straight across the water from Cleveland. If you know where Cleveland is, yep. you get yeah, on the you go across the water and if you get in the car and drive 20 minutes, you're at Chatham. That's where it is. I was serving there. Mm -hmm. And I have the permission of, of, of the fellow who passed, he passed on now because he was in his 80s when he died. But uh, when, I, when I was serving at a church in Chatham, Ontario, there was a lovely couple. He was a World War II vet. And he was he was fit and healthy even in his seventies. We're talking about the you know he had the abs when he was in his seventies. Wow. <laughs> he used to work out all the time. He never departed from the disciplines of exercise he learned in the Canadian Army all his days. Now he married a lady who was five foot nothing and skinny as your finger, <laughs> and they were a sweet couple. I used to love watching them walk down the road. The town was about forty thousand people, and so everybody knew everybody else, right? I remember driving down the street. I would see this couple. He was six foot four, strong as strong could be, with a great big, huge, you know, muscled body with perfect hair in his 70s. I was greatly jealous of that up to the day. <laughs> He'd be holding hands with the wife of his love. You know. And they looked like an odd couple because she was so short and thin and he was so tall and muscular, but they loved each other. Anyway, I get this phone call. And uh, they said, hey, would you do a 50th wedding anniversary for us in April? This was in September or so. I yeah. said, oh, wild horses wouldn't keep me away. That's a beautiful thing. Let's lock the date. So we, you know, we looked at the calendar. We locked the date. And I said, well, do you want me to come over quickly? They said, no, as long as the date's locked, we can invite people. You can come over and plan some other time. Okay. I said, okay. So about a month after that, I, I wended my way over to their home. And we were sitting in their front room. And they were old school. You know what I'm talking about? Old yeah. school. Yeah. So there was a beautiful tablecloth. There was a silver tea service. There were little dainty things on lace doilies. <laughs> there were little <laughs> dainty. And you had to move your finger. Like if you watch Mary Poppins, when they pour yes. out, you <laughs> finger out, right? And this was, you had to be on your best behavior in this house, right? So it was very reserved. It's the best way to describe it. So the, you know, the, the man I'm talking about, Mr. Mr. Towsley, was sitting at the end of this table, and he was dominating the table because he had a long torso and short legs. And he was a big, tall guy, muscular. And his wife was across the table from me, and she asked if she could pour out. That tells you about the English. You know, she's pouring these teas, right? And the man looked at me and said, can we change the date? I said, oh, I, uh, when do you want it? And he said, well, we'd like to do it between Christmas and New Year's instead of all the way off in April. So I pulled my planner out, and I looked, and I was clear on two days. So I said, one of those two days. So they picked one. I said, well, listen, are you trying to save money for your family so they don't have to travel twice? And he said, no. I have level four bone cancer Ooh. and I will be dead by April. And so I know that I can probably make it to Christmas and I want to celebrate 50 years with the woman I have loved. Wow. Oh, she starts to cry. Yeah. And my job, I had my planner in those days. I had a paper planner. I had my <laughs> yeah. planner open and I had come there to take notes about the 50th anniversary and make plans with them about what they like in it. Yes. And as I am sitting in this, I just, I, my, my whole, I mean, I'm in shock because the guy is, looks, looks the picture of health. He's not. And so um, I looked at him and he said, then he started telling me hymns he wanted in his funeral. <laughs> I mean, that's, wow. no. So he said, oh, by the way, I want. And, I, and I, I, he said, write that down. So I took my pen and I'm starting to write his favorite hymns. And as I'm doing this, this was the signal. Again, it was the same signal. I felt 
compassion rise up inside my soul. Now I'm sitting there with a silver TVC service and a white tablecloth and laced, you know, doilies with little dainties on them. And this World War II vet and a, and a lovely lady across the table from me. And I, I have, I feel this presence and I feel like a, a hot tear come out of the corner of my eye. Mm. And a picture pops into my brain. And I saw me putting my hand around the back of his head and on the far side, putting my hand over his ear and praying. So I looked at him and I said, may I pray for you? And he sat up ramrod straight, World War II vet like, stuck his big chest out and he mm -hmm. said, I'm married 50 years. My two kids are raised. I sold my business, paid off my house. My wife's in a good position and he changed the subject. Now, if you have ever been in the ministry, you know, that's code for pastor, do not touch with barge pole. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> anyway, so I said, okay, okay. I'd been in the ministry a few years and I said, okay, okay, that's fine with me. So I went back to taking notes and once again, but this, here's what happened. The peace got bigger. The fire got bigger. The compassion got bigger. And now I'm weeping from two eyes. Yes. And this picture is in my head of me putting my hand around the backside of his head and praying for him. So I looked at him and I asked him a second time. Now I knew I was breaking the rule. <laughs> And he sat up Ramrod Street, grabbed the edges of the table, looked at me, and there was fire in his eye, and he repeated the speech. You know, uh, I'm married 50 years. I'm at peace with God. My two kids are raised. The business is sold. I, my wife's set up. It's okay. I, I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it was like, why did you not get the subterranean text, Pastor? I thought you were smarter than that, right? So anyway, I asked him a third time, and I asked him a fourth time because the picture would not leave my head. And finally... He looked at me and he said, why do you keep asking if you can pray for me? I said, because I have a conviction in my soul that the Lord wants you well. Yes. So he, he said this. He said, well, married 50 years, the two kids are raised. <laughs> but then he said, <laughs> he said, you're the pastor. Go ahead. And so I, he, he conceded that I needed to do my pastorly duty. Right. So I reached yes. around. And I put my hand over the, the, that spot on his head where I saw it in my head. And as I prayed, the exact same thing that I described to you with the other guy with the phlebitis. This fire filled the room. His wife began to weep buckets of tears. And it wasn't sadness. It was something profound is happening here. He slumped over on the table. And this fire filled his body from the top of his head to the tips of his toes. I felt it. His wife felt it. He felt it. He was able barely to look up and said, what is that fiery heat coursing through my body? And I looked at him and I said, I believe that the Lord Jesus is granting you a healing. And then he said this. He said, keep praying. <laughs> <laughs> keep going. <laughs> no, no. So listen, now, Rob, I can't tell you if it was five minutes or 20. I, I honestly, I when, when that kind of thing happens to you, you are utterly unconscious of anything else except that, that something profound is happening as you are praying. And it lasted, I don't know how long it lasted, but when it finally ended, the presence lifted from the room and he was able to sit up and he said, what was that? I said, I believe that the Lord is granting you a gift and he wants you to celebrate life with your wife a little longer. And he said, may I call you? And in those days, we had my home phone, my church phone. I didn't have a cell phone, right? And um, this is before this. This is one of the one of the, those defining moments that you want to talk about. And again, I did not plan it. 
I tripped into this. <laughs> That's, I was going to do a 50th wedding anniversary, right? Yes. So anyway, here's what happened. And this, there's, there's, a, there's a corollary to the end of the story that, uh, that again, and it was un, utterly unexpected. Uh, his nephew, or rather his, his grandson, was sleeping down the hall. He was a night shift worker. And he was sleeping down the hall while I was in the house. And I didn't know that the grandson was there. All right? Okay. So anyway. I left and I gave him my home number and I gave him the church number to reach me at whatever time he needed to. And then I went off and I did my hospital rounds and those were ordinary. I mean, I went to see somebody and I had a little quick prayer and I prayed consolation for them, et cetera, et cetera. They had the surgery and where you go, all the kind of thing. And he called three days later when I was doing my hospital rounds, couldn't get me, got my wife and said to her, why is it that every time I do my prayers or read the Bible, that fiery heat courses over my body again, and I can't even stand up. And he described this to my wife over the phone. And when I got home from doing my rounds, uh, she, she said, you know, he's having more encounters with the Lord. And I said, you know, God's going to heal him. And so here's what happened. Now, this is a Canadian story. We have universal health care up here, but it's a little yes. slower than your, your automatic health care down there. Yes. Uh, six weeks later, I got a call from him. And I was working in the office, getting ready for my, it was a Thursday morning. And that's usually the time when I would have to have my sermon done and ready to, to go to press so that I could do an outline and a Bible study for the church. And I had a death ministry in the church and they would sign and I had to have the whole manuscript done for them. And so I had to get it done by Thursday so they could practice signing it for, for Sunday. Anyway, I had just finished writing the sermon and I was just about to set, push send to get it off to, uh, to the death ministry when my secretary walks in. Her name was Linda. Yeah. Now, Linda had been invited to the to the April event and knew about the date change. Before, right? she knew. Yes. And she looked at me and she said, you got a phone call from Ron. He needs you to come right now. And I looked at Linda and she looked at me. And of course, I said, you better cancel my day. And she said, it's canceled. I already did it. <laughs> so I got the car and I drove over to this house. Now you got to know it was like Groundhog's Day. Everything was identical. <laughs> I sit down and there is this white tablecloth. There's this silver tea service. He's sitting at the head. The wife is sitting across. Her name is Mary. Mary was sitting across from me. There were these lace doily things on the table and she poured out the silver tea service. And then the man looked at me. Now remember, he was a conservative World War II vet guy who uh, was, was, how do I say this? There's a generation of believers who believed but talked about it at arm's length. Can I say it that way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of those guys, right? Real faithful guy, hardworking guy, honest guy. He would read his Bible at night. If you asked him, he'd tell you, but he was not one of these guys to push on anybody. Anyway, yeah. he sits up, he's reserved, and he says, had a biopsy got the results i'm looking at him he said cancer is gone and then he went wow. like this and then he, <laughs> we know who got that <laughs> <laughs> now let me give you the end of the story so fast forward and we're talking about three years ago now that was a 1998 story so fast forward to about three years ago and i'm now a seminary professor teaching a class yeah and there is a student in the class whose name is Tyler. And Tyler, and so I tell the story. 
that because I'm, I'm talking about how the Holy Spirit works and I'm talking about compassion being the trigger and what this manifest presence feels like. And actually, the thing you put your finger on, the difference between relief versus the experience of the Spirit, I was talking about that. And I tell the whole story. And this guy, Tyler, raises his hand. I said, can I, can I share something in the class, uh, Dr. Dean? I said, well, how long is it? He said, well, just take me a minute. I said, okay, I have more to my lecture. He stands up and he says, that story is true. I was sleeping down the hall when my grandpa got healed. Mm. And I said, you were, you were the grandson of Mr. and Ms. Ron and Marion? He said, yes, I am. I was okay. a shift worker. I was sleeping down the hall. I woke up to get ready for my night shift and my grandpa was lying on the couch, obviously resting. He sat up and I said, Grandpa, you look odd. He said, what's going on? He said, well, there's this fiery heat coursing through my body. <laughs> Pastor David just came and prayed for me. He said, well, why did he come and pray for you? And he said, because I, I haven't told you yet, but I have a diagnosis of level four bone cancer, but I believe the Lord has made me well. And he told the story in the, the class I was teaching after I told my story. Wow. And so he corroborated what had happened in that 1998 story. All those years later, like 29, 20 years later. That's amazing. So, again, and I wasn't, I, I, when you just don't get it, I wasn't looking for <laughs> what happened in my class on the Holy Spirit. I was teaching a seminary class to a bunch of students, right? Yeah. So uh, this this was, you got to know, those were defining moments for me. The first one that I told you was the defining moment because it, it, it made me realize that there are things unseen and I don't have to always know what I'm doing. <laughs> yes. So true. So true. Sometimes God keeps you in the dark and allows you to trip into things so that you don't boast, but he gets the glory. Yeah, like that's that's what people have to have to understand that it's not always gonna look the way you want it to look. You know, in fact, it never looks the way I want it. Yeah. <laughs> it never yeah. Does. It's so true. Like even even with with me doing this, yes, it's like I knew I wanted to speak. Like I was doing workshops and stuff within within my gym, but even just like speaking on these topics and getting people's backstories. Like when I started this podcast, I didn't even really have a direction. I just kind of like I knew I, I was a good speaker. I knew I could inspire people, but I didn't really have the central theme. I'd like just once I started speaking. Actually, <laughs> you you know when it happened. I was on a Zoom call. This is the week that my gym got shut down. Okay. And so I joined, I immediately joined a mastermind group. Yeah. And people had to kind of kind of how you all did at the publicity summit, how you had two minutes to, you know, pitch your pitch your, your product, business, book, or idea. Yep. And so it was just like uh introduce yourself, tell where you're from and what you do. Yep. It it seems like it would be simple enough. And so many people were bad at it. So many people. <laughs> so, so, so as people are talking, I'm writing their names down. And then when they're done, I would shoot them a private message in the Zoom and be like, hey, my name is Rob, Rob Foster. I can help you better tell that story. And so like I call myself the storytelling coach. And I don't even know if that's a thing, but that's what I do. And like it wasn't something that was planned. It wasn't a direction I saw coming. Yep. But I would just put in a position to use the skill set that I have to help better the lives of other people. So you just never know what it looks like. 
Well, actually, you know what? It's a common theme in the Bible. So, I mean, one of the most hilarious stories was the way that the Lord raised up the first king in Jewish history. So there's this guy, his name is Saul, and his daddy runs a farm. He was a big farm boy, big strapping farm boy. He was strong and he was good looking. And the donkeys get lost. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a guy named Samuel the prophet. He'd never met him. Samuel was praying because Samuel's old and they want a king and he needs a king, et cetera, et cetera. So Samuel, and he gets this word from God. Oh, I'm going to send you somebody from the land of Benjamin. He's going to be the king. Yeah. And so the donkeys get lost. And Saul winds up spending three days and three nights out in the wild, sleeping, <laughs> trying to find these crazy donkeys. <laughs> and then he runs out of money. He runs out of food. He's probably smelling bad. And his friend says to him, what are we going to do? I said, well, there's a prophet in the next town over there. Why don't we go and inquire the prophet? They were broke. They had two dimes to rub together. They probably smelled bad. And there was a festival being held in that town. Yeah. Now, you got to know, at a festival, you dress up, you wash you get the best leg of lamb, you put that on the table, and you don't come in there after spending three days sleeping out in the wild. Yep. So he shows up smelling like you know, mm-hmm. and, and Samuel hears the voice. That's him. That's the king. He looks at him. He puts him at the head table. Now, can you imagine coming from a camping trip after three days without shaving or washing and winding up at the head table of a wedding? <laughs> 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 and then he says, you're the one. He says, I'm the one for what? And he pours oil on the guy. He becomes the king. I mean, that was not his idea. Neither with David, the king of Israel. He wasn't accepting it easier. When the first king blew it, God raises up this shepherd boy. You know, that's, and so, <laughs> and, you know, and the story is hilarious. You know, wow. he's, he, so this guy, there's this farmer named Jesse. He's got a pack of strong sons, you know, five or six of them are already in the army. And so Samuel, the prophet, who's now very old and doesn't know what he's going to do with the fact that the renegade king is being an idiot, says, what am I going to do? And God says, I'm going to send you that farm over there. And he says, well, they'll kill me. Saul will kill me if he knows I'm trying to raise up another king. And he says, well, just go and tell him you're going to do a feast. So he shows up and all of these handsome sons come off showing off their abs and showing off their expertise. And God says, none of them. It's the boy in the field. Mm. He makes all of them strong brothers stand up and wait till the boy washes and comes into the presence of the king or comes into the presence of the prophet. then he anoints him with oil and makes him the king and he wasn't trying to be the king he was trying to make sure those sheep were safe <laughs> <laughs> so this is it's, it's kind of like the story i told you at the beginning yes it's 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 it, you you trip over a root you bang your head on a rock you're about to swear profusely and make your mother mad at you and you discover you got a diamond or a sapphire or a ruby See, and most people spend all their time talking about the bump on the head. You know what? And and they don't realize <laughs> that they're holding a piece of gold or a diamond yes. or a sapphire or a ruby. And mm-hmm. it's these things that you would seem like they're accidents. Yes. They're not accidents at all. They're divine appointments. God has set up something for you. In fact, I can say this to you without even a second's hesitation. Every single major thing that I have ever done in life has not been something I have planned. Not even the wife I married. In fact, that's a hilarious story. That's a, <laughs> that, I mean, here, here's how I met my wife. My heart was broken because the girl that I wanted to marry married somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I was just a, like, I was grief stricken. And I actually was serving a church in Northern Alberta. And I decided that I needed just to, to, to lick my wounds and get over this. I resigned the pulpit and I went off to school. Yeah. 
And I didn't have a lot of money because pastors don't make a lot of money. And especially a small rural pastor doesn't make a lot of money. And I had saved up a little bit because I didn't have kids and a wife and that kind of thing. But they didn't pay much. Anyway, I had $7,000 total and you know, the tuition was half of that. I was going to move to Vancouver. Now, if you don't know this. That's on the other side, right? Yeah, it is. It's right. it's it's as expensive as New York City, right? Okay. It's very, very expensive. In fact, it's probably some of the most expensive geography on earth because it's landlocked with mountains. It's just north of Seattle, okay? Yeah. And it looks very much like Seattle, except it's far more expensive. Anyway, the bottom line was moving to this city. And I don't have enough money to be able to pay the bills. And so I was always looking for ways to cut corners. Well, there was somebody in my church named Ruth who was going to be moving to the coast to take a different course. And I said, oh, isn't that nice? She said, look, you know, we can save some money if we just put our two households together and we'll move it all at the same time. And she had a friend named Elizabeth. And she said, look, if the three of us put this together, it's the cost of one move. And as it turned out, it was five five to 10% more than my moving myself. Yes. And so it was a lot cheaper to do that. So I just put all my stuff in Ruth's garage and I tented my way across the mountains of British Columbia and I came to Vancouver. And then there was an appointed day where I was supposed to go and get my uh, my stuff. For, the mover was going to come to their place. So Ruth and Elizabeth were going to be roommates. And uh, I was going to be in a different city. I was in uh, this, the adjacent city. So the plan was show up and help them move in and then guide the driver to my house so that we could uh, so that I could get my stuff moved in and we'd save two thirds of the cost. Right. Good idea. So anyway, I show up. Ruth has to work two more weeks. And so this lady, Elizabeth, is with her cousin, Robin. And they're cleaning out the apartment to get ready for this move in. And I show up at 10 o'clock in the morning, which was the appointed time for the mover to get there. This was before cell phones, right? You remember these phone booths? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Superman would go in there and so would Doctor Who. Anyway, <laughs> watch out if one of those boys showed up. So here's what happened. We wait until 2 in the afternoon. No mover. And so I don't know these two girls. I, I met Elizabeth briefly, you know, but I didn't know her. I didn't know her cousin Robin at all. And I'm, I'm a stranger with these two girls sitting in this apartment. And so they go outside and there was a construction zone right across the street. And we find a phone next to a construction zone. She calls her dad and screams into the phone that the thing is not there. And the guy tries to find the truck. Then um, he, he said, call me in an hour. So we called him in an hour at three o'clock. And the guy said he had a breakdown to be there next morning, 10 o'clock. So I said, oh, okay, that's fine. So I drive off and I'm, I still have my camping stuff, so I'm fine, right? So I come back the next day and I'm there at 10 o'clock. No moving truck. And this, the, now it was Friday, okay? And so we tried calling again and the moving company says, we don't know where he is. We can't track him. Mm-hmm. So we had no choice except to hang around and wait. So I'm waiting and then we hit the weekend, you know, and I'm a preacher and I was preaching in a church. Yeah, I didn't have my notes and my plan was to pull an old sermon out so I wouldn't have to prepare anything. And uh, I didn't have my notes because they were all in that movie truck. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't know what to do. So I created one out of my head and these two girls felt guilty. So they came to church and then her cousin had to get on the plane and leave because she was going to leave on the Friday. And so now we wait on Monday, we wait on Tuesday, we wait on Thursday, we wait on Friday. And I, but you know, I'm sitting in this empty apartment with this strange girl. I don't know who she is. I hardly know her. And of course, what are we talking about? And she keeps, she's very Canadian. She keeps saying, I'm sorry. And I'm always, <laughs> she was the one who arranged the moving truck, right? Anyway, mm-hmm. by the time we hit the Thursday, I looked at her and I said, Look, you need to know something. My heart is broken. 
I don't want to see a breathing female. <laughs> Leave me alone. I, I am not interested. And as it turned out, she'd just broken up with her boyfriend and he had been actually, he had been stalking her. Oh. And she, and so it was not good. Yeah. And so she said, I am not interested in any male. I said, look, I got two brothers. I don't understand estrogen and females at all. She said, I have two sisters. I don't understand testosterone in males. I said, I need a sister. She said, I need a brother. I said, good, it's a deal. <laughs> you know what happened? Uh, we became the best of friends because we, we, were, we were in this crazy thing. We had to solve the thing together because we, both her stuff and mine was in this thing. Yeah. Eventually, the guy shows up. And you know what he did? Exactly. He decided to take a mountain vacation with his son. So he was sitting with our stuff, fishing in the British Columbia interior. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> with his moving truck, because it had a sleeper bed in the back, and him and his son were having a nice time. Ten consecutive days. Wow. Well, they gave us a deep discount. They fired the driver, right? But here's what happened. I bonded to this girl, and she became my best friend. Mm. And in the course of time, I looked over at her, and she looked over at me, and we realized we were to marry. But, I mean, you got to know something. I was not looking to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. I was trying to save 66% on my move. And I was trying to get myself <laughs> all town, Alberta to Vancouver, British Columbia, and to save money doing it because I didn't have a lot of money left over. That was my only agenda. And in the process, I tripped on a route, banged my head, looked at the rock and discovered it was a sapphire. Wow. And that's how I married my wife. I'm That's amazing. Voice. I love that it's story. Providence. It's the, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's let's talk about let's talk about your book. We got yeah, about sure. three and a half minutes to go. Okay. Do you, you, want, you want to show it to you? You want to do yeah. that? Yeah. Okay, yes. So this, this is the book that you that I that I actually have another one coming out soon, but this is the one that you saw. It's called Amy Clare is God's Idea. And it's a co-write. I didn't just write this myself. I wrote this with uh, an upper room author by the name of uh, Reverend Maxi Dunham. He has got 47 books to his under his belt. Wow. So he so we co-wrote this book because both of us realized there was a crying need out there for uh, teaching people how to pray for him. Because I didn't know how to do it. He didn't know how to do it. And in the course of time, we both learned various principles. And here's what happened. He came to my church. And when he came to my church, he said, you know, um, uh, I, I am preparing a, a brochure to teach my intercessors how to do this in my church in, in, in Memphis, Tennessee. And I had prepared a brochure to do it in my church in Spruce Grove, Alberta. And he, we looked at the two things. The theology overlapped 95%, but the practices were different. And we said to each other, why don't we put the two of them together and create a book called Healing Prayer is God's Idea? And so uh, in the court, it took, there, were, there were fits and starts. It took us a while to get around to this thing, but we finally did. And so last May, we published it. It was, it was available on Amazon. And yeah. so if you go to Amazon.com, you can get the uh, Kindle edition. And actually, it made number one in the prayer category when we, when we launched the book. I was really quite delighted with that. That's and it made number two in the paper cat category. And I'm yeah. sure it's because he is a well-known author. It's not because of me. I'm not very well-known in the United States. But um, he and I are doing things together. And because of him, I'm going to be doing some conferences in the U.S., so I'm going to be going to Lexington. Hey, do you know Alveda King? Do you know her? Alveda Who? Alveda King, Martin Luther King's niece. Do you know her? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm going to be sharing a pulpit with her. Awesome. Yeah, that's going to happen in Lexington, Kentucky in November. So that's one of the ones that came out of this book. So oh, if, if the border is open by then. What's that? What's that? Sorry? 
Oh uh, yes, well, if, if the border is open by then. Do you think it will be? I, don't, I hope so. I hope so too. Yeah, you never I know. And like all all of Australia is on lockdown right now. So yeah, uh, I know. So, but here's what I can do. I, I actually I'm going to be becoming the director of an American nonprofit in about a month. Okay. And so I'm going to be flying into Los Angeles. I can fly, and right now I don't have to quarantine. And so what I have, but I am double vaxxed and I'm very thankful for that. So I will be going into Los Angeles. I'm going to be heading up an organization called the Research Institute of Contemporary and Cultural Studies. And the, the reason for that is so that Americans can donate if they wish to, so that I can, I, I have several goals. One of them is to, is to write resources and to train people. And you got to know, there's all kinds of other disciplines in the Christian life that I didn't receive training in. And I tripped into those too. And I don't want people not to have access or ability to be able to understand and learn. So this book is actually a primer. And another one that I'm writing, it's going to come out in the fall. It's called, uh, Hey, Are You There? It's Me, God. How to Listen, Test, and Know When God Speaks. Again, it's a primer, teaching people how to pay attention to the signals. But um, my goal is not just to work in Canada and the U.S. My goal is to travel to poorer regions across the earth. Yes. And I hope I have I've spoken in, in Travel Society Uganda. I have spoken in Latin America. I have spoken in parts of Southeast Asia that are poor. And I would like to create a donor base and uh, to be able to fund those trips and go to places where the church is weak or poor and to help them. And so it, I'm going to be the director of RICS, R-I-C-C-S, the Research Institute of Contemporary and Cultural Studies. Uh, as of uh, um, August 16, that's when the transition is going to happen. And okay, so that, my hope soon. is, what's that? So that's soon. It's very soon. And so, um, you know, the fact that my wife got COVID was a bear. Now, let me just tell you something. I don't, I'm not what I call a prosperity gospel guy. I don't believe you can slap people on the forehead and get an automatic healing. Yeah. But I do believe this, that the healing power of the Lord is available today and God initiates and we respond. But I want that message to go into every kind of church. And you know this, there are faithful believers in every, every Christian tradition. That's, I don't care if you're a Catholic or a Baptist or a Pentecostal or a Mennonite or Episcopalian. There are Christians everywhere and they're honest folk who don't know how to do these disciplines. And my goal is to create resources and to train these things. And so I've written two books this year. The one you, that you saw, the National Business Book, the one I held up, is how to learn how to do prayer for healing in churches. And the one that's going to come out in the fall, going to be published on Amazon. Hey, are you there? It's me, God is going to be designed to teach people how to pay attention to the signals that the Lord's trying to get your attention. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's our time. So you have a final word for us? Hey, uh, let me say this to you. It's been a delight to talk to you. You picked the best possible title for this thing because when you just don't get it, it's the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, mo it's most everyone else's too. Like I think that's true. I think if you push under the surface, you'll discover that most people had something happen to them and it became a defining moment. Yes. And uh, I said, well, that you, you describe it yourself. And, but I can say this to you, uh, God is into those. That's <laughs> no, true. It's and so he true. Wants, he wants your attention. And you will discover him when you're least expecting it. And if you cry out to him, he'll pay attention and he'll intervene. But it won't be the way that you're expecting. <laughs> yes. Like there's, there's a young woman who who signed up for a free trial that I had at my, my gym. Yep. And so she comes in and as we're, as we're talking in the consultation, because you know, I'm pretty good at reading people and asking the right questions to get them to open up to me. Yes. And she just starts, you know, unloading a good amount. And so I was like, I don't really think you're here 
for fitness. <laughs> I said, because I help people, you know, unpackage stuff like that. Yep. And so, you know, like we had, we had met because things had just gone virtual around the first time she reached out to me yep. just to, just to talk. And then, you know, she, she wasn't quite sure of the way I was leading her. And I was, and then so some time would go by that she, she would reach out to me again. And then she would reach out to me again. And, and, she, and she's like, you know, it's like, I just don't know what to do. I'm like, you do because you keep coming back to me. Yep. Everything that you try, you keep coming back to me. <laughs> it's like there is a reason why. That's called so, a divine appointment. That's yes. called a divine appointment. God yes, it's like this. Yes, it's like this is the guidance that you need. You're resisting it. It's like if you just step into what you're being pushed to, you know, you can find that thing that you're looking for. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Yes, it's true. And actually, what you need to learn to do is to, actually that would be the topic of my next book, which is going to come out in the fall. Hey, you're there to be God. There are actually the book is starts with a couple of hilarious stories where I trip into discovering that God was trying to get my attention. Yes. Have you got time for one more? I could take one more. Are, yeah. we, are we done? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, let me tell you. I'll tell you the first story in the Hey book. All right. This, this is hilarious. So, um, so here's what happened. One night, my I, I used up the last little bit of milk that my daughter needed for her Cheerios the next morning. And it was like 20 to 10, quarter to 10, somewhere in that range. And so I said to my wife, hey, Liz, the grocery store closes at 10 o'clock. The next closest one is a 25 minute drive away. I better go and get that milk. And she said, okay, where you go. So I get in the car and I close the door and it's dark out. And now let me just put this in perspective. The church I was serving likes the modern stuff these, these little choruses and hymns that I don't know very well, but I love the old classic stuff. And I, I turn the car on and my favorite classic hymn starts to play on this thing. Now it's dark and the doors are closed and I'm driving. So nobody can hear my voice and nobody can see me. I belt the song out. And as I am belting the song out, I have holy memory come into my brain about why that hymn was so important to me. And I drive right past the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> Caught up in this thing. Yeah. I realized I just passed the grocery store. I got 10 minutes before the store closes. I better turn around. So I turn around and I'm driving back and another classic hymn comes on. It was my daddy's favorite hymn after he became a Christ bomb. And I remember him belting out that song in a terrible off-tune voice and always, and I start to worship the Lord. And I drive right past the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. And I am listening to these beautiful old classic hymns and I'm driving around and I have this magnificent experience of nearness with the Lord filled with, I, I just can't, and it's getting bad for me to drive. So I figured that I better pull off somewhere. And I'm listening once again to one of my favorite hymns and I pull into a driveway. And as I'm in this driveway, I close my eyes. I thank the Lord for this. And suddenly I was in this other place. I was in the Lord. I was in this. And I just was totally unaware of my surroundings. And I turn off the car and I open the door and I walk up toward the door house where I was parked. And I knock on the door without even thinking. And suddenly I realized it's quarter after 10 at night. I just knocked on some stranger's door. What kind of a oh, no. crazy thing have I just done? And I am just about to turn around and run to the car when the door opens. And it's a couple from my church. I had never been Come to on. That's a true story. And I, I, they were newcomers to the church, but I recognized the guy because he looked like a converted biker. 
He had tattoos from the top of his head all the way down in deep blue and dark, dark colors, all the way down to his fingernails. And he had a beard that would make Santa Claus jealous. I mean, the guy had this <laughs> beard. And, and so I knew him because they had come and shook my hand at the door. His name was Tim. Her name was Sarah. And so they, and she looked like a church mouse. He was a biker and she was a church mouse. Anyway, as it turned out, <laughs> I said, Tim, Sarah, how you doing? And they looked at each other and they said, Pastor David, you're here. I said, well, I am. And, they, and she looked at him and he looked at her and she said, God heard our prayer. God heard our prayer. And she starts to cry and he starts to laugh. And then he starts to cry and she starts to laugh. They both drop to their knees. They hug each other. They said, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I said, what are you doing? She said, <laughs> we had a terrible argument, a terrible argument. We hurt each other. And then we apologized and we dropped to our knees and we cried out to the Lord. And we said, oh, God, we're in trouble. Please, right now, send Pastor David to our home. Send him to our home. Send him now. And I drive up in the driveway singing a hymn, and I walk up to the door, and I knock. <laughs> wow. You got you to gotta know, I had no idea they had prayed that prayer. I had no idea they lived in that house. I had never been to that house before. And as it turned out, he was uh, somebody who had, who had not know anything about the gospel and he met the pretty girl right and so he had asked her out and she said no if you want to date me you got to come to church <laughs> so he came to church and in the course of time they had lunch after church and she wouldn't go out with him until she was convinced that he was a good guy and her daddy watched him he eventually became a christ follower the two of them married and then they moved cities they came to my city they bought the house he got a job there and they came to my church and they were checking it out and uh, they liked it. They'd only been there like a month, but I really didn't know them. I, I, I mean, I knew their, their names because I have a habit of greeting at the door and getting names of newcomers, and that's why I knew them. But it's I good, know. Well, I know, but I had no idea who they were, and, and the Lord sent me, and they said it. They did a terrible thing. And so I wound up counseling them, and then they became part of my small group, uh, and it was a, a delight. They're friends to this very day, and I have their permission to use their names in the book. That's great. Well, again, I, I wasn't looking for that. I had not a sweet clue. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, again, thank you for taking the time, you know, to come share your stories. Very entertaining, very inspiring, you know, very eye-opening. Well, it's been a joy to be with you, and I wish you all God's best, and I hope that, uh, that your podcast just takes off. And listen, I better shut up so you can grind. Ah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> Have yourself a great day. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Take care. I started doing workshop use on the yard so guys could breathe. Went from like a hundred percent to like almost nothing. <laughs> oh wow. Well, time flies, so we uh we're all done. <laughs> so, give but me we have a, to talk about my book. Why I wrote yeah, it? Yeah, I was just gonna say, say, give me, give me a fi final words, whatever, whatever you want to okay. talk about. Go ahead. So when I left the prison, the biggest thing I wanted to do was to have people um, see the system through my eyes, and that you can do through stories, and that can be through an author or as a speaker. 
And I wrote my book, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor, which they can get on Amazon and Kindle or Audible or print or whatever. Um, my website is discoverdrg.com. And I do speaking engagements on prison reform, but also on general topics where I use the prison as a background, both the prison and medicine as a background. Say your, say your um, website again. Discoverdrg.com. It's like Dr. G. That's what they used to call me. Right. Okay, there we go. That's it. Discovered yeah, that, that's my website. They could also get the book from the website as well. Okay, awesome. All right, so um, so give us just like a quick a quick uh, another summary. Like I know I know you just spoke yeah. about why why you wrote it, but like what's one big takeaway from the book, and then we'll break it down. The big takeaway is uh, to see the humanity behind bars, and to want to. In, I want the public to see the inmates like uh, I saw them, as individuals who had problems that can be prevented in the first place if we as a society and a group actually were interested in affecting things like systemic racism, poverty, mental illness, addiction, and look at it really through the eyes of... Um, well-being and health versus punishment and ostracization and things like that. And second, I really wanted them uh, to be inspired to make a difference somewhere in their lives where they could be part of the puzzle to help the situation. And I push holistic prison reform where it's the prevention piece, preventing kids from ending up in prison. This is why I mentor kids. Prevention is big, just like in medicine, prevention is big. And then if they do end up in the uh, prison system, that we do everything in power to educate and heal and make sure that when they leave, they're less of a risk to society, not more. I mean, we've got it all backwards. And then when they leave to truly help support them, not stamp them with a felony stamp, which makes the obstacles incredibly and create laws where you can't live here, you can't do this, uh, you can't get a good job. I mean, we want to help them reintegrate into society. Yes. And, and I think it'll increase humanity across the board, but also it is highly stupid and costly the way our country deals with the criminal justice system and very unfair. And it's really unfair for the poor. It's actually unfair for what my inmates would call pumas, the poor, the undereducated or underprivileged, M standing for mentally ill or minorities, and A, the addicts. The system is really uh, unfair for that, that particular group. Agreed, agreed. I, I also say on the prevention piece, if we can stop kids from making those decisions that will land them there, you know, like I, I had a guy on a debate show and we were going back and forth about this. And, and I said, you know, obviously, yes, prison reform definitely needs to happen. I'm like, but how about we stop pumping out criminals? 
You know what right. I mean? It's, it's like we got to give these kids the structure and the guidance and the resources that they need, regardless of home life. If we can, if we can get to them with enough power and passion and direction that we can at least keep some of them from heading down that path. You know, and I try to do that when, when I speak in schools, just trying to hammer it into the kids. Like no matter what you have going on, you can make a difference. Like you can be the one to change it around. Like if your grandfather was in jail, if your dad was in jail, if your mom's in jail, you can break the cycle. Like it's up, up to you because somebody has to break it or else it's going to keep happening. You know, it's interesting you say that, Rob, because yesterday I took Dante and I, my husband and I mentored him since he was three. Now he's 14 and he really took my husband's death hard. And so I'm mentoring him. But imagine yesterday I took him to his high school orientation uh, because his mother, let's just say, is not you know, uh, a very good mother. And she mostly wanted me to take him to the orientation. So I would pay all the fees, right? You know? <laughs> but, but I took him to the orientation. And then afterwards, uh, we went to uh, the Mac, what's called the Mac Center, where I played basketball with him. Okay. But he said to me, he goes, uh, Karen, um, you know, I want to be the first person in my family to graduate high school, right? Nice. And I'm like, well, that is exactly what I want too. This is why, you know, I take my time to mentor you and give you opportunities and things like that. And, oh, I wanted to share this. A couple of weeks ago in my area, uh, the Boys and Girls Club up in Reno had what was called the Martin Twin Basketball Camp, like Cody and Caleb Martin, you know, those identical twins. Yeah. Yeah. So they took their time and brought their own little coaches and friends and had a basketball camp for kids for two days. And I was able to get Dante in it, but those guys are the nicest guys, but great, great role models, incredible with the kids. And... And that's what we need more of, you know, Great. because that that interaction Dante had with those two young guys, and I pointed out to him the reason those guys are also like that was because they had an incredible parent who held them, their mother, you know, held them to the straight and narrow and peers and things like that. That's what it is. That's how it's all 